Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast, Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm also here with David Richardson, a frequent contributor to Hot Wash. He's a former Assistant Secretary at Department of Homeland Security and a retired Marine. Today, we look back on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and some of the most consequential strategic decisions of the 21st century, with a critic of American militarism and the conventional wisdom of the defense and foreign policy establishment. We're joined by Andrew Basevich, president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a veteran, a graduate of West Point, a historian, and most recently author of After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. Andrew Basevich, welcome to Hot Wash. Well, thank you very much. So in a, in a recent Washington Post poll, 46% of Americans say the events of 9-11 changed the country for worse. 33% said they changed the country for better. Where do you fall? Well, it's one of the, it's one of those questions I think kind of defies a, a simple uh, yes/no answer. Uh, but I, but to avoid punting, I, I guess I guess what I would say is, nine uh, eleven brought to light and made unmistakable the core defects of our our approach to national security uh, and. The um, the conclusion of the Af- Afghanistan war, you know, the defeat, the failure we suffered there, I think serves as kind of a punctuation mark uh, that makes it impossible uh, for us any longer to deny that our basic approach to national security has been wrongheaded. So looking back... Uh- the results of 20 years of war, Iraq, Afghanistan, numerous other places, our counterterrorism efforts, is, do you see that as an indictment of the fundamental ineptitude of, of the entire federal government? I mean, are you laying the blame on policymakers, on the establishment, on the civil servants, on the defense People on the people in the military. How, how do you how do you see the, those results reflecting on the different components that make up that establishment? Well, you know the the easy answer, uh, but an unfair answer is all the above. Uh, un- unfair and yet uh, not entirely inappropriate because all those entities and groups own a piece of this thing. But I think that then you say, well, how how can it be? that they all share in this responsibility. And I think that really gets to the more important question, which really has to do with a set of, uh, of expectations that, uh, that gripped the establishment, pervaded the establishment uh, in the wake of the, of the Cold War. D- didn't, come, didn't become fully apparent until after 9-11. But I think the, the crucial moment is the end of the Cold War. At the end of the Cold War, we decided that we were the indispensable nation. And that was a phrase that was bandied about. People like me mocked that phrase. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think that the, the conviction uh, that the end of the Cold War had given birth to a unipolar order uh, was taken quite seriously. That the end of the Cold War, meaning the demise of communism as the principal uh, you know, competitor for liberal democratic capitalism meant that there was really only one system that was going to define the future of the planet. The, 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 the belief that the outcome of the Cold War, Cold War turned in, 
to a very significant extent on issues of military power that the Soviets gave up because they concluded they could no longer compete militarily. I'm not even sure that's true, but I, I think that that idea uh, was, was believed in places like uh, Washington, uh, the, the Pentagon. All of that together, I think, created a mindset that, that, that sent us down a path that led to 9-11, uh, and that beyond 9-11 led to a host of other miscalculations, particularly in the realm of military power, that then, you know, ultimately lead to the scenes that we saw in uh, Kabul a couple of weeks ago. And, and let me emphasize, it's not the scenes in Kabul a couple of weeks ago that really matter. What really matters is the 20-year war that preceded those scenes and, and you know, brought us to that conclusion. So. A lot of blame to go around, but I do think that it, it was a, a, a radical misinterpretation of an important historical event that got us where we are today. So are you arguing that there should not have been a military response at all to, to 9-11, or is it simply that it went off the rails at, at some point? Went off the rails, I think. Uh, uh, the, yes, there, there needed to be a response to the unwillingness of the Taliban to cough up uh, Osama bin Laden. In other words, we needed to make it unmistakably clear that any entity that harbors or supports uh, anti-American terrorists was going to pay a heavy price. That needed to happen. What didn't need to happen is the 20-year ensuing occupation, nation-building uh, project that we uh, uh, didn't do very well on to uh, to put it mildly, but I mean it, the, the real. But I mean, a, a foundational mistake was concluding that the proper response to terrorism was war. And people said it at the time, not me, but people said it at the time. Hey, wait a second! As horrible as the attack on the World Trade Center in Washington was, the proper response was not war. Proper response was to, 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 to define Al-Qaeda and similar entities as part of an international criminal conspiracy, requiring a response that was not war, but international collaboration to root out and destroy the conspiracy. That would not have been easy. Uh, maybe it would have been more difficult than what we tried to do. I think it, it offered an alternative that would, would have been more promising. Now, let's remember the mood of the country after 9-11. We, we wanted blood. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we wanted blood with an expectation that, by God, the, nothing could stop the American military. And so we were going to take down whoever we wanted to take down. So the mood of the country was arguably wouldn't have permitted the alternative course that I am suggesting we should have taken. Yeah, and and at the time, people who suggested that there was a a, a legal response or to think of pe these people as as criminals was roundly mocked. Yeah, it was absolutely. Uh, David, you wanted to get in here. Uh, yeah, Professor Besovich, you know, I was reading in your book uh, Washington Rules, and you had kind of a uh, holy trinity of of American military foreign policy, which was 
global military presence, global power projection, and global interventionism. And it causes kind of what you refer to as a uh, semi-war, uh, essentially constant crisis. And what I noticed while I was in the military, uh, also industry, and then as the assistant secretary, is the government overall is usually in somewhat of a semi-crisis. Um, and uh, I also noticed that when they work on projects, uh, they're normally behind in cost, they're over budget, and they're not performing very well. So there was a part of the Afghan war and the Iraq war, if you want to call it that, which was not really war. It was a project. And that's what I think, and I've come to the conclusion, is that's a reflection of the overall ineptness of the federal government writ large. Uh, so does that kind of uh, dovetail with what John was asking? Well, I guess so. But I mean, I think, I think it's important for us not to make the indictment uh, too broad. The, the beginnings of the evacuation from Kabul were a fiasco. And, uh, and the, the criticism heaped on President Bush, or on Biden, rather, excuse me, uh, he deserved it. Uh, you know, obviously there were intelligence failures. Obviously there were planning failures on the part of the military. That said, that said, who else could have evacuated that number of people from what is essentially a war zone? In that amount of time. What did we get out? 123,000 people? Yeah. That's extraordinary. And my point is, there are some things that the United States military can do that nobody else on the face of the earth can do. Nation building is not one of them. And and there, of course, the indictment is not simply directed at the United States military, but it it could be shared by uh, the State Department and, uh, you know, uh, USAID and, and so on. So the lesson there to me is we need to be far more realistic in recognizing what we can do and recognizing what we can't do. Now, why, why did it take Iraq and Afghanistan to drive home the difficulty of nation building? Why wasn't the experience of Vietnam sufficient on that score? How is it that, and I think this is true, maybe maybe I'm mistaken, that after 9-11, the expectations within the George W. Bush uh, administration that we could transform uh, Afghanistan and Iraq into some equivalent of a liberal democracy, used Japan and and Germany post-1945 as the reference points, even though, you know, Japan and Germany in 1945 were not exactly like Iraq and Afghanistan uh, in, the, in the 21st century. So we need to do a better job of understanding what we can do and what we should avoid even trying to do. Right. There, there, was, a, there was an aspect of war that was probably uh, had to do more with special forces and killing al-Qaeda or you know, other folks on the hit list. Um, but the nation building was more of a government project. That quickly fell behind or over cost, uh, behind schedule, and wasn't performing as we thought yeah, it should. Yeah, but, but isn't it true? I mean, tell me if you disagree. I, I mean, you're right. I think the counter, the, clearly, even though it's all you know happening, it's all classified. I, I don't know much about it, but it appears that the counterterrorism uh, 
efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan were remarkably effective. Again, something we know how to do. Right. We know how to commit special operations forces and kill people and to do it with remarkably low uh, U.S. casualties. We're good at that. But I don't think we can separate that from the uh, lack of success in, in nation building. Because the little, you know, the, the, the little Afghan villagers who we would like to influence, who we would like to persuade to support the Afghan uh, government, they're the same villagers that, you know, two nights ago, uh, you know, had a missile strike, uh, you know, clobber some building that uh, we believed, whether rightly or not, uh, was, uh, you know, was uh, providing sanctuary to terrorists. So the military effort, even even where the military effort was successful, I think I'd argue that the military effort was undermining the nation-building effort. Well, and, and, and to look back, I mean, I would question whether we really had been doing any nation-building at all since, uh, you know, at least 2014, arguably even since, you know, early in the Obama administration and that you know at, le- at least since the 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 you know end of combat operations in 2014 it was really a maintenance uh, program and that the people that were dying were primarily the the Afghans well i'm, I'm not uh, sure i mean I, I, I guess the well, go ahead well i'm not sure i I, you know, I i didn't serve in afghanistan so what do i know right <laughs> but but i i i took seriously the reports issued, I think, on a quarterly basis by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, SIGAR, right, uh, who uh, reported in detail uh, on the nation-building efforts that, that certainly continued beyond 2014. Uh, and his, his their mo- most recent report, which kind of gave a set of, uh, you know, overall lessons learned, it's devastating. Uh, the level of incompetence, uh, the waste uh, that, uh, what, that was exhibited throughout this 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 undertaking. Lots of reasons for why that you know that you know we misperceived. I think what Afghan society consists of. Uh, we <laughs> the management of the thing was that you know a. a a travesty. So there's lots of reasons why it went badly, but I do think that it continued beyond 2014. Well, let's talk about uh, the cigar report. We had Craig Whitlock on a previous episode talking about the Afghanistan papers, and and you you relay in, in your book one of these uh, when uh, Stan McChrystal, who you know who was really highly revered leader of special operations, long history of counterterrorism, he's tasked by Obama to review the Afghan policy in, in 2009. And in this, you know, 60 page report he submitted to, to Bob Gates, he was essentially arguing for the surge for, for a larger footprint, a, a much heavier military reaction. And you wrote, quote, his assessment contained no option A to compare with B and C. There was only A a comprehensive counterinsurgency campaign. The acknowledged master of counterterrorism was opting for an entirely different game, coin. As a course change, this was on par with Michael Jordan abandoning basketball to give baseball a try. 
which of course Michael Jordan did, <laughs> didn't work out well. <laughs> it did not work out well, exactly. But yeah, so I mean, what about that? Why, why do you think even people who had experience in smaller footprint targeted counter, you know, special forces uh, operations, I don't know, fell in love is the right word, but were drawn to this idea that if we only committed, uh, you know, a few more battalions, uh, we could we could turn this thing around. Well, it was a lot more battalions, uh, and and would have been for a, a very long time. But I mean, to tell you the truth, only McChrystal could answer that uh, that question. What I would say is, re- recalling the mood of the moment. The mood of the moment was that David Petraeus had turned around the war in Iraq and had us on the road to uh, victory in Iraq. Uh, and how do you do that? He did that by introducing a new field manual. What was it? Uh, 3-24, but a a formula for counterinsurgency that it seemed at the time, I think it was an illusion, but seemed at the time that that was producing uh, victory in in Iraq. So General McChrystal gets appointed to be the uh, president, the the senior commander in, uh, in Afghanistan. Step number one, assess the situation. Step number two, having assessed the situation, provide a template. How are we going to go forward? I think, I think counterinsurgency was the idea of the moment. There was no real evidence that counterinsurgency was going to – there was no evidence that, that Afghanistan and Iraq were comparable theaters of war. But I think that uh, you know, McChrystal's under the gun, come up with a plan. Uh, he, 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 he's a prisoner of the moment. When counterinsurgency supposedly is the new American way of war, I mean, that idea is long gone now. And so when he does this assessment, uh, there is only one answer. And the, and the one answer is we have to do, we have to do coin here. I think it was a, a wrong answer. I, when, I, when I said that, you know, that his analysis didn't offer option B or option C, I was implying that there was a level of dishonesty. You know, when, when, when the boss says, please study this, pro, this problem and come back and tell me what you think we ought to do, I think the subordinate has an obligation to the boss to say, boss, there's, there's different ways to, to skin this cat. And, and I want you, boss, to have the opportunity to compare those approaches so that you, boss, get to make the decision because ultimately you're responsible. That's not what McChrystal did. McChrystal, McChrystal gave Obama one and one only choice. And then let us remember, and I, I mean, I think this is deeply troubling. They, bas- they basically pushed Obama into a corner where he had no, uh, no alternative uh, but, to, but to accept that. Remember Petraeus, who at that point is commander of U.S. Central Command, right, goes right, public. Right. Oh, no, there is no alternative except counterinsurgency. You remember that McChrystal traveled to London and gave high-profile speeches. No, there is no alternative to counterinsurgency. And, and given the fact that we've got Obama as a relatively new president, zero military experience, maybe I'm being cynical, but it seems to me that the, that the four stars realized that they were in an advantageous position where they could press the alternative that they wanted. 
And they did that. And it, and it, and that worked, although counterinsurgency in, in Afghanistan certainly did not work. So, I mean, on, on some level, you can pass over someone making a, a, the strategic wrong choice. But I think the, the real issue, and, and to talk about Petraeus, you, you went back to his Princeton thesis and found a quote uh, where he said, uh, what policymakers believe to have taken place in any particular case is what matters more than what actually occurred. The, the follow through and the reporting that things are going well when obviously they're not well documented in, in SIGAR, why does that occur? Why, why when you know, people who should know better, why does everyone double down on policies that are continuing to go wrong and, and you know, show no promise of going right? Well, you know, if you're responsible for what's going wrong, it's really, really hard to accept that responsibility. It's really, really hard to say, whoa, I sure screwed that up. Uh, oh, by the way, at the cost of lives, at the cost of, you know, billions and billions of dollars. So it's a it's a sad aspect of, of you know, I mean, again, I'm a Vietnam era guy. Yeah. You know, how 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 could it be that in Vietnam when it was probably uh, Robert McNamara, as secretary of defense, who was an architect of the war, concluded, I think, by late 1966. That this was lost. There was no way to turn it around. And yet the war continued for year and year. And year. How, how, how could that be? Well, I mean, among other things, Lyndon Johnson didn't have the, have the political courage to accept the consequences of admitting this uh, massive failure. Nor, nor did the four stars, you know, whether on the Joint Chiefs of Staff or, or uh, in, in Saigon. So we had, we had a bunch of journalists you know, out there in the field calling attention to the fact that the war was not going well. And, and for their troubles, they, uh, you know, were denounced as traitors. Uh, although, you know, in the long run, they probably came out looking better than William Westmoreland and Robert McNamara and, 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 and Lyndon Johnson. So I think it's hard to take responsibility for a big time failure. Right. So speaking of Westmoreland and McNamara, they don't really play that well in history. How do you think history is going to treat uh, Petraeus and McChrystal? Well, it's a good question, and it's one of those questions where the honest answer is it's it's too soon to tell. You know, where where will Iraq and Afghanistan be in ten years or twenty years? I I, I myself wouldn't even hazard a guess. But if ten or twenty years from now. Uh, Iraq has stabilized, has achieved some, you know, reasonable semblance of a democracy, uh, is more or less aligned with the United States, at least is not a problem for the United States, then I suppose historians will say that Petraeus was more right than wrong. Uh, I'm doubtful that that will be the case, but but it is that's what his, historical judgments only uh, have have value uh, when undertaken when when time has passed, when there's a certain amount of perspective, and we don't have that today. I mean, again, I'm 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 signed up that says the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War were both disasters. I think they are irredeemable, but I acknowledge that. Uh, in some respects, the jury's still out, and we'll see with the passage of time. 
So in, 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 if that's correct, then Vietnam's doing relatively well today. We may have won the Vietnam War. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I acknowledge that Vietnam is doing well. Yeah, all right. So, that, so we won. <laughs> they, what, did, what did the North want? The North wanted right. to reunite the country right, right. and be left alone. Uh, and so after, after we messed things up for a long period of time, they reunited the country and they were left alone. And you're right. They're doing pretty well. Right. But they won the war. You know, what we got was 58,000 dead troops. Uh, God knows how much, uh, you know, money we wasted, damage right. to American credibility. We didn't win. The, we didn't win in Vietnam. <laughs> I, just, but, I had it thrown in there. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I want to uh, wrap this up a little bit because I know you have to have to go. So with America, with this, we have a history of these expansions and contractions looking inward and then going overboard uh, in, in foreign wars. Uh, this kind of cycle. Do you think we're entering a period of contraction, of withdrawal from the war, and inevitably a power abhors a vacuum? Let me make that a better question. How do we get out of this cycle of advice uh, that, that is not grounded in rea- reality? This the kind of conventional wisdom, the groupthink of foreign policy. Uh, uh, of people in the foreign policy community and the defense community, how do we tell ourselves when things are going badly? How do we how do we listen to uh, the the critics who say, you know what, maybe this isn't such a great idea? I'm not. That's a good question. I'm not sure my answer is helpful. But the blob, right? That name for the foreign policy establishment, the coined by Ben Rhodes, the blob is stuck in an era that no longer exists. It's the era of American primacy. It's, it's, it's the post-war era. It's the Cold War. All that's gone. Uh, and, I, and I think the failure, is, uh, in, the failure in Afghanistan is, is like, you know, the best piece of evidence in that regard. So the issue is not, you know, is expansion, contraction, you know, engagement, isolationism. I think the issue is, are we able as a nation to see the world as it is and to then adapt our place in the world accordingly. What's that mean? It means we're not the only superpower. It, it, it means that the, the threats to our well-being, yours and mine, our fellow citizens, are really not, in particular, out in East Asia. They're much closer to home. You know, I worry about climate change. I worry about COVID. I worry about porous borders. You know, I, I worried about the unbelievable dysfunction uh, in, in, in Washington. Uh, those are the things that, that make me worry about the security, my security and the security of the people I love. That doesn't mean you ignore East Asia. doesn't mean you ignore, you know, uh, Russia. But it does seem to me that we need to re, uh, reassess threats and therefore then rethink responses to threats. Maybe we don't need quite so many aircraft carriers. Maybe we need to have a more robust United States Coast Guard. So that's the conversation I think that is is badly needed. Needed. I don't know that that conversation is actually going to happen. Well, Professor Basevich, I think we could talk all day. I have a, a million other questions, but I think we will have to end it there for today. 
Andrew Basevich, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military defense and national security issues that matter. You can sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Richardson and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.